Welcome to The Loins of History, a podcast connecting history to current events and correcting political and historical illiteracy. My name is Jay. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Colin. And this week, we are continuing our series on the fall of civilizations, but talking about a new civilization, talking about the collapse of the Bronze Age with all of those different civilizations that I know next to nothing about. So Colin, I'm excited for you to uh, teach me and our listeners today. Uh, And with that, um, I will do some shout outs. (laughs) Uh, We got three shout outs today. These are all good comments uh, on YouTube. First, John Hudson, 3568. Thank you for the helpful information on the literacy tests. Uh, during the Civil War, a Avena Oat, uh, giving us a good comparison to the fall of the South to the fall of Nazi Germany, and J.D. Gill 686 for giving us a helpful personal perspective on uh, some of the uh, discrimination against uh, people from up north. So thank you for all that. Uh, and please uh, just... Uh, A reminder to everybody, if you give us a five-star review and a comment, uh, um, we will give you a shout-out at the beginning of our next episode. That is by far the best way to help us in this podcast is to to give us a review on whatever platform, uh, if you're on YouTube, to subscribe or subscribe on whatever whatever platform you listen to our podcast that that tells the algorithm you like uh you like this stuff and that that helps us out the most so uh with that colin take us away jay thank you as always so the bronze age you're probably asking yourself what the heck is this and (laughs) yeah and then that's exactly why i decided to pick this this uh topic for the 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 mini series when we're talking about fall of fall of empires because um, you know, as Jay and I were talking before the episode, Jay made a comment that he's like, it's almost mythological and to a degree it is. Um, unfortunately, because of how long ago the bronze age was, we don't have a lot of written records. It's not like the civil war where we have everything documented down to, you know, how many boots a certain army ordered in 1864. We have a lot. Some of these civilizations, like the Egyptians, the Hittites, they were very good record keepers, but it was 3,000 years ago. A lot of that was destroyed by the elements, other civilizations, just time itself. So a lot of it's kind of mythological, and we have to sort of piece together things that we know, things that we think we know, and then some other assumptions based on what we've seen in other civilizations. So it's just a really fascinating time period. So the first, I guess, question that I can answer here is like, what exactly is the Bronze Age? So the Bronze Age was a period of human advancement, as I would like to say, both culturally, technologically, um, through trade, interconnected economies, culture and arts and religious acts. And it started around 3500 BC, 3500 to 3300 BC is kind of when the the general start of the Bronze Age is given. And it ends in about 1200 BC with the Bronze Age collapse. So what are some of the advancements that occurred during this time period that set it apart from, say, the Copper Age and the Stone Age beforehand? And what made this um, a very special time? And I would say to start off with the advances in metalworking, um, being able to um, alloy copper and tin to create bronze is probably the catalyst that started a lot of this or all of it Hence really. Bronze Age. Hence, ipso facto, <laughs> Bronze Age, right? So hmm. they were able, instead of using just copper or wood or stone or you know flint tools or weapons, they were able to create bronze, which was way less corrosive than copper on its own. It was also stronger. So making tools, making weapons, other sort of, um, you know, really, especially tools for like agriculture building. It helped increase your production. So think like recently and a few episodes previously, we talked about the industrial revolution and how much more food we we're able to yield. Kind of similar to 
in the Bronze Age. Now that we have these bronze tools, we can be a lot more productive. We can build more. We can harvest more. We can kill more. We can survive uh, tougher things. So the population begins to grow because you have more food. You have weapons to keep you safe. You can build bigger buildings. Um, And so that led to rapid urbanization. And I say rapid in like a historical sense, meaning like, over hundreds of years. So yeah, like relative, the, yeah, relatively relative, rapid urbanization, relative. <laughs> so like before the bronze age, most of like cities and villages, I, you can't even call them cities because they're really just settlements of a couple dozen or maybe a couple hundred people kind of scattered about on areas where food was plentiful. So, you know, not to say that people didn't group together and there weren't tribes. They just didn't form what we would think of as a city. So the first cities began to form in ancient Sumer uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River in modern day Iraq. Um, and one of those first ones was Eridu and followed by Uruk. Some of the others that came later were like Hattusa, Memphis, Thebes and Egypt, Manoa, so those that was on the island of Crete, but like the first one that we would consider like a city city where we have a, a centralized network, organized bureaucracy, a leader that was an Eridu. Um, and then shortly thereafter, just up the river, Uruk became the first city to reach 50,000 people. So if you think about it in like 3000 BC, 50,000 people all living together and the requirements that it it would, you know, they would have to sustain that population within a city. You'd have to have a complex system of logistics just to get food from the countryside into the city. You'd have to have organization and people being able to lay out the city, plan the city. You'd have to have religious um, leaders able to more or less deliver the um, religious ceremonies and rites to the people. You'd have to have leaders that could make decisions for not just their tribe, but this entire city. So something historically speaking was a first. So then another thing, as cities began to grow and become formed, you started having what trade networks established between these cities. So that was one of the trademarks of the Bronze Age, separate from beforehand. Not that people didn't trade with one another and barter with coins and you know other goods, but now you had actual networks connecting the Egyptians to the Mesopotamian civilizations like Sumer, Akkad, Assyria, Elam, and Persia, but then connecting them to the Indus Valley uh, and the civilizations there, and then having China and the Shang Dynasty being able to travel cross land or over the sea to to the other side on the east coast of India as well. So um, one of the book recommendations, and I should have said this earlier, is um, The Sea and Civilization by uh, Lincoln Payne. And what he does, he goes through and kind of tries to shift your perspective from kind of a land-based history to a sea-based history. And he discusses um, the evolution of history from the sea you know, starting with Pacific Islanders thousands of years ago and tracing it all the way through modern day uh, shipping and trade. And he kind of stops along the way. So it's not a specific Bronze Age book. However, he does talk about the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, um, the Indus Valley, and how they were all connected via sea trade. And what's interesting, you know, I mentioned that we don't have a ton of written records. We do have some. So we were able to find receipts from different trade that occurred between Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia. So we could see that Mesopotamian goods were being transported back to Egypt and vice versa. So we can see that these complex trading systems were beginning to exist and flourish now for several hundred years because of the Bronze Age and the populations they had to sustain. So it's very interesting. So then, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely fascinating because, like you said, we tend to think of like human civilization as spawning from, you know, the Mesopotamia area, like Iraq, uh, Turkey, you know, Armenia type area, and then kind of like people just migrated by foot. It it is interesting to think about like. Hmm. They may have got there by foot, but they it, the easiest way to communicate over long distance, especially for trade, 
then and today is still by sea. So it is interesting to think about like how they, how they did that. Yeah. The sheer mass of goods that you can deliver by boat, um, even if it was over a short different distance makes it much more efficient um, than Mm -hmm. overland. Because if you think about it, if you're going to try and trade between Egypt and Mesopotamia, that's a long trek over desert. And at this time, even though, even though you started having cities form and army standing armies and leaders who were effectively governing their city state, nation state civilization, they were still very spread out and there was kind of like wild hinterlands around these urban areas. So it was very dangerous. It was still very dangerous. And I'll get into that more in a second, but you know, I'd sort of just, that's a good segue into this one. So again, not to say that there weren't distinct groups of people prior to the bronze age, but here we have start having distinct civilizations. So, you know, we've heard of like Stonehenge and if you're really into pre-Bronze Age history, maybe places like Scarabray and things like that where you had, where we found evidence of specific tribes that existed. Where's Scarabray at? Very north of Scotland. Mm. Like, yeah, I think it's it's not on the Shetlands, but um, was it the Orkney Islands? Yeah, I think it's up there in the Orkney that Islands. That sounds right. Um, okay. But yeah, you know, they found, a, it was like a big found some buildings, some tombs, like they, they saw like religious ceremonies. They had burial sites. They were like, this was a very distinct group of people. However, it w- we would not call that a civilization. Um, so like different civilizations began, began to occur. So you had like the, the Shang in China all the way out to the Minoans and the Mycenae, Greece um, toward the West. But uh, for the Bronze Age collapse, we're probably going to focus mostly on the Middle East and the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, especially, because uh, they were the civilizations most affected. I will go through each of these in a minute to kind of give you an idea of who the the uh, historical players were during this time period. And then finally, culture and arts. So again, not saying that there weren't wasn't art. We've we've seen cave drawings from thousands of years ago. There was defined cultures. But here's where we start to see an explosion in the amount of culture and arts that existed. We have writings like the Epic of Gilgamesh from Akkad. We have um, um, the Minoans were famous for having frescoes painted. We have a lot of different mass-produced pottery, different pieces of art, statues, Religious ceremonies became highly important. So you had the ziggurats being being built. So culture, arts, religious um, ceremonies uh, became much more mass produced. So we start mm. to see an explosion of it. And the evidence is still around. Like prior to the Bronze Age, we kind of do some guessing. We're like, okay, well, we see a lot of eagles or we see a lot of paintings of this. They must have worshipped eagles. Now it's like, well, they wrote about this. They they definitely worshipped these gods. Mm. They have this temple that we very specifically know was a temple like a ziggurat. We can see them writing different epics, the epic of Gilgamesh. We, you know, yeah. in Egypt in the Middle Kingdom, they began writing a lot more. We still have a lot of that. The Minoans, we can still see frescoes mm. and all There's of like these There's like all different- these different signs of like functioning society. Exactly. It's, it would be almost be like if suddenly New York City was emptied out, but you went down Broadway, you'd still see all these posters of like, you could very clearly see, oh, they like to hmm. play. It looks like they exactly. did plays here. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's the picture is much clearer. This is not a disclaimer here. This is not an exhaustive history of each of these different civilizations. There's a lot of great resources out there. I'm sure there's other podcasts that are going to go through each of these. This is really to give you an overview of each of them and say, Here's where they were. Here's kind of what they're known for and what they did um, to give you an idea. Like we're spanning 2000 years of history here. A lot of it is written down, but lost. And, you know, it's I'm piecing it together to paint you a better picture of the Bronze Age. So um, starting in the the Far East. So you had Shang China and Shang China began to develop around the Yellow River um, after 2000 B.C., um, they are known for having a strict class system and their leaders for being 
not just military leaders, but also religious leaders. Um, they developed Bronze Age tools. So then they began cultivating the land and had an explosion in agriculture, which kind of led them being the dominant force in the Far East. So thus the, the Yellow River and the Shang Dynasty. And they lasted until about 1000 uh, BC. So then kind of moving west. And there's some other groups that I'm, I'm skipping over. I'm just trying to go through the major ones. So in the Indus Valley, you had the Harappans, and they're pretty interesting. One of the, the cool facts that I learned from them is they actually had the smallest um, unit of measure for a Bronze Age civilization. They had a, a unit of measure that would go down to about two millimeters. So they were very well known for like engineering and building. They Dude, were that's not- interesting that it like helps for engineering to actually have like a coherent they unit had a, of they had a system that, that handles yeah. like small stuff yeah they we have seen that they had they had a recorded it's another thing we we don't know this this happened prior to the bronze age maybe it did but they had a recorded system that they could get they can measure down to two millimeters which is hmm. very precise um so they were known for building um strong engineering. They didn't really do a lot of sea travel. However, they did receive a lot of trade via the sea. And so unfortunately for them, they began to collapse right around 1200, maybe a little after um, from an invasion from um, the Aryan horsemen that came in from what we think is actually like Turkmenistan. Uh, so they weren't affected by the sea peoples, but there were um, horse lords from the steeps that came down and invaded northern India. Um, and that kind of is what pushed the Harappans out of the picture. Uh, so then moving further west, you had Elam in Persia. So Elam, uh, Sumer, Akkad, Assyria, and later Babylon were all kind of rivals in this Mesopotamian cradle of civilization, if you will. So that's, they existed in modern Persia. Um, you had Sumer and I kind of went into Sumer as well. They, you could say they're like the first civilization, if you will, right between the Tigris and the Euphrates, kind of in Southern middle Iraq. Now, um, the first cities of Erdu, Uruk. Um, and then in the North, you had a city of Akkad or Akkad. Uh, I don't know how you want to pronounce it. Uh, if you want to put a little Southern twang and say, ACAD. <laughs> yeah, I think it's ACAD actually. Yeah, it is. Um, but so the, and they became, um, so that became a very powerful city in Northern Iraq and eventually began to dominate its neighbors and turn into its own um, civilization of ACAD. And uh, if you've ever heard of Sar Sargon of ACAD, he was kind of the first known leader of the Akkadians or Akkadians. So then even a little bit further north, um, near Nineveh, you had a city of Asser, which is the birthplace of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were known for being brutal warriors. So they're the first ones to have a standing army. They were feared on the battlefield. They were known for like psychological warfare and absolute cruelty to their enemies and both you know external and internal. And so the Assyrians kind of, it's interesting looking at them over the course of the Bronze Age because they have a couple periods where they kind of rise up like um, pre-collapse. There's a couple hundred years where they became become like the dominant civilization in Mesopotamia. And then they have some internal strifes. There's some bad harvests. And they sort of fall off and they don't, they don't necessarily disappear, but they move their capital from Assur to Nineveh. And then as the Bronze Age collapse is occurring, the Assyrians are the first ones to start using iron weapons, which compared bronze to iron, um, iron is substantially stronger. Like bronze is still, as a metal is concerned, kind of soft. Um, so when you have iron weapons against bronze weapons, iron weapons are going to win every time. So they kind of rose back to power and eventually, you know, put a lot of pressure on the Elamites and Babylonians. Uh, so further kind of northwest you had in what is Anatolia or modern day Turkey, the Hittites in their capital city of Hattusa. Um, they were known, uh, the, a lot of different things that they were known for, but one of the, the key things that they were uh, most known for was being extremely meticulous record takers uh, for like legal 
legal writings, proceedings, the bureaucracy, just their government. They were very structured and we have a lot of written records from the Hittites. And I do want to say one of their best or their most well-known leaders. So there was uh, one of their famed uh, warriors who became the leader of the Hittites um, and then challenged the Egyptians. So the Hittites and the Egyptians had a bit of a rivalry um, and they would clash over disputed territory in like the land of Canaan. Um, you know, so the Egyptians would, would move up, try and push into Hittite territory. And likewise, the Hittites would push south into Egyptian territory. Um, but his name is Supil Uli Uma the first. So I probably butchered that a little bit, but that's I think that's kind of a fun name to say, but he is one of their most famous uh, kings and rulers. And then uh, as you move south uh, across the Mediterranean, there's obviously the Egyptians. The Egyptians um, are really split into three dynasties. So you had the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. And in between each of those, so between the old and the middle and the middle and the new, there's what's called an intermediate period. So each of these kingdoms is kind of divided by or defined by centralizing power between kind of the upper and lower, um, upper and lower Nile regions, um, and creating a stronger centralized state. And then during that time of relative internal stability and peace, building great buildings uh, or monuments. Uh, so like. In the Old Kingdom, historically, the Great Pyramids of Giza are attributed to the um, Old Kingdom, um, while in the New Kingdom, you had Ramesses II building monuments in Thebes and moving, actually, the capital from Thebes to Pi Ramesses. Um, that's kind of a recurring trend in ancient e Egypt, like moving the capital around. There's different reasons why they did it. Um, Sometimes it's known, sometimes it's a best guess, but like they have moved it around for, for different political reasons. And so like, obviously Egypt is also defined by the Nile river and its relationship with the Nile, uh, both as essentially creating like a very fertile area for agriculture to exist in an otherwise very hot climate, um, as well as transport and trade. So in the sea and civilization, um, kind of one of the the chapters he does early on in the book that's really interesting is talking about being it because the the Nile runs kind of opposite to what we would think. It actually flows like south to north into the Mediterranean. Um, so when we say like upper and lower Egypt, it's actually reverse. Like upper Egypt, upper is actually in the south, and lower uh, is in the north because it's lower as in lower down the river. Uh, but yeah, German Germany's the same way. It's like it, linguistically, High German is from Southern Germany because that's where the Alps are. And lower, yeah, yeah, lower it's like German an altitude thing. It's not Germany. a, yeah. it's not a latitude thing. It's, it's an not a north south thing. thing. Yeah, it's an altitude thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and you know, he traces the evolution of their shipbuilding just on the Nile. So you know, initially for a long time, we thought, well, they would only flow like everything had to flow um, upper to lower. But then, you know, much earlier than what we would have thought, they were able to develop um, sails and move and row and row boats up the river. So yeah, uh, the development of of ships along the Nile, just being able to transport both from north to south and south to north, um, really helped with the development and growth of both Upper and Lower Egypt. Um, because culturally speaking, there was d a defined difference between upper and lower just because prior to these ships being built, just because the lower Egypt was definitely much more agricultural. So it, it did have some longstanding cultural differences. Um, but um, back to the north in the uh, Mediterranean Sea, you had the Minoans. So they lived on Crete and the Minoans were known for like culture and craftsmanship. Um, they, you know, you think about it, you live on a nice little Mediterranean Island um, life's probably pretty good because they're really not susceptible to evasion as of yet. So like they had life pretty good. So they liked making frescoes and great pieces of art. Um, if you've ever um, like heard of the Minotaur or the labyrinth, like those were built by King Minos on 
Crete. So that's kind of where that's where we get that um, legend and those myths. But the the labyrinth actually existed on on Crete. So um, that's what they're known for is arts, crafts, culture. Um, further north, you had Mycenae, Greece, and uh, it's interesting about Mycenae, Greece. Um, like if you've ever read the Iliad uh, or the Odyssey, like those two books were written um, right at the collapse of the Bronze, or they were they're supposed to take place right at the the uh, the Bronze Age collapse. They were recorded by Homer or they were, they began by Homer like 400 years after the fact from oral tradition. But we think they happened right around the collapse of um, the Bronze Age. All right. So that's kind of a five minute synopsis of all the civilizations from that existed within the Bronze Age. So looking at those, I think it's interesting to see within the Bronze Age, the interconnectedness of all of them. And I'll show you, I'll tell you why that's important. I mentioned trade, but like for the collapse, the reason the collapse, we even know about it as an event is because not just one or two of these empires fell, they like four or five of them fell. And then the ones that didn't were severely weakened to the point that they never really recovered their former glory. You had um, some estimates up to 150 different cities raised all at the same time. It's probably closer to like 50 to 100. But either way, that's a massive number of cities that were just burned to the ground. Um, Yeah, that's still pretty crazy that, I mean, I can't think of a similar parallel in history where you just had like mass collapse at relatively the same time. Right. And it's, it wasn't like um, with Rome and Carthage where you had two powers fighting each other in an existential crisis, you know, an existential war where one is going to live and one's going to die during the bronze age. There's, this is kind of like Colin's opinion, historically speaking, comparing it to other civilizations, like, Yes, they fought each other. The Hittites and the Egyptians fought each other a lot. The Assyrians were very warlike. I want to caveat that and say that even with that, there was not like this huge rivalry between like Rome and Carthage, Rome and the Sassanids, Rome and Greece, where it was one or the other. They would fight. A, they would fight each other, and uh, the Assyrians did conquer um, some of their. Um, Mesopotamian brethren, but by and large, they still existed within the same time frame. Like the Hittites were not conquered by the Egyptians. The Egyptians weren't conquered by the Hittites. There was periods during Egyptians' intermediate period where some the uh, group called the Hiskos came in and took over kind of pieces of it. But I would argue that existentially during the Bronze Age, these civilizations weren't wiping each other out and creating empires. They were kind of more or less, historically speaking, that's kind of a squishy statement, coexisted. Does that make sense? Yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. Like Rome went to dominate other civilizations. These fought them, but you, at, they even at this like point- completely conquering each other. Yeah. I mean, the Assyrians tried, but I mean, even then, the Assyrians could only make it so far and they could right. only over, you know, so they still existed within pockets of each other. So- War existed. It was just different than it was in late antiquity. Or like in nobody went and completely conquered Egypt. Yeah, nobody went and salted the earth in Egypt. No, nobody conquered right. and salted the earth. Uh, Cartago, Delinda, Est. Like that didn't happen. So it's interesting to see this collapse because they kind of all relied on each other, I think, personally, with these trade networks. I think that's part of the reason they didn't do it because they still kind of relied on each other. Um, anyway, so what was the collapse? And here I just kind of want to talk about like what it was. Next week we're going to get into some very specific events and dive into those much deeper. But around 1200 BC is when we think and that's kind of like the benchmark for where we put it. You can add plus or minus 100 years to that just based on how long ago it was. But um, it's defined by civilizations like the Mycenae Greece, the Minoans, the Hittites, all being uh, completely destroyed. The Egyptians suffering massive defeats and kind of diminished power. The Assyrians and Mesopotamian civilizations experiencing kind of their own dark, dark age. So, and by dark age, I don't mean like everyone just 
lost a bunch of IQ points and they became backwards. It was, we don't have a lot of recorded history from those periods. That's, that's what a dark age actually means. We just don't have a lot of recorded history. Like I mentioned with the Iliad, it was passed down orally and Homer, you know, that's who we attribute it to actually was uh, recording it hundreds of years after the fact, after the Trojan War occurred. So like that period of these or that oral tradition being passed down was the Dark Ages, a kind of a BC Dark Age. So it also ushered in the Iron Age. As I mentioned, the Assyrians were the first ones to use iron weapons. So that began to spread. All right. Also, these trade networks between them were um, massively interrupted. So you, we can actually see through like archaeological records, like a halt in pottery that was being produced in the Eastern Mediterranean being sent over to uh, Mesopotamia and Elam and India. There's actually like a halt that we can see for hundreds of years. There's kind of this halt of goods being sent over. And it's kind of amazing that we can see that that occurred. All right. So why exactly did this collapse occur? Um, Hate to, hate to default to a historically squishy statement, but a lot of things, and it kind of depends um, on who you ask. So one thing that I will say is the environment and the climate actually kind of, I th- me personally, I think is what kickstarted this. And it's not, um, it's not historically without precedent um, or it didn't actually occur other times. So like if you've paid attention to the news now, obviously climate change is like a huge talking point. But one of the things within climate change that we're talking about is migrations of people because they're going to run out of resources, food, water, things like that. So we call them uh, climate refugees. Again, there's there's a historical precedent for that. Like that happened yeah. quite a few times. If you know about the little dark age or the little ice age in the Middle Ages, we there was a period during those dark ages where the environment caused um, all sorts of different um, migrations of people. Think about like the the Huns, the different Germanic tribes invading uh, Rome. Part of that was because the temperature was getting colder and there was less food. So they were in, in search of more food. And there was obviously other barbarian pressure. I get it. But that was one of the reasons, you know, the environment. So it's not unheard of. And it actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. So we're actually able to take a look back at this time period toward 1200 BC and see that um, – its climate in Mesopotamia in the Middle East was substantially drier than it would have been normally. So they've actually gone out to different lakes and done uh, taken samples and seen like, hey, the water levels in the Middle East and Egypt would have been a lot lower. And what can we guess from that? There's a lot less rainfall. It was drier. Harvest would have been much worse. If you're familiar with um, the Ten Commandments, there's also like in Egypt around this time period, like the Bible obviously talks about locusts and there's famines that occur um, early on in Genesis with um, Joseph going to um, Egypt and having a dream and talking about you need to prep. So like famines do occur and we can actually see from the historical record there were bad harvest in Mesopotamia, in the middle in Mesopotamia, the Middle East, Egypt, that area. And it's weird. We can actually see in Europe where we think um, a group called the Sea Peoples partly came from that it was actually much wetter and potentially colder than what we would have think, uh, what it normally would have been. So you can see um, a lot of snowfall might have thrown off um, their food supply. So bad harvest. So you think a bad harvest causes famine, population goes down, and it just creates a lot of um, instability politically. So if you think about these cities now have thousands of people living in them, you have to feed these people. And hungry people tend to riot. They tend to revolt. They're going to try and rebel against you. And so that happens around this time period, a lot causing political instability across these civilizations. Interestingly enough, there's actually several volcano eruptions that occur. Uh, One of them uh, was on Crete, actually, and I think 1600 BC around that time period. And that's actually what wiped out the Minoans. It's not like a, a Pompeii type event, but it was enough that um, it disrupted their civilization. 
they either left or living on the island was not sustainable to live at the same lifestyle population level at their current civilizational trajectory. They just couldn't do it anymore. So like the Minoans were taken out by um, a volcano and that happened a little bit before the Bronze Age collapse, but it was kind of one of those events that precipitated it. And obviously we're talking in historical terms. So a few hundred years is not that long. There's actually another volcano that they believe erupted around this time frame, uh, time period in Iceland. And so this actually happened a couple times and caused some pretty cataclysmic events across the history. So they think it actually dropped temperatures pretty significantly. Again, if you have a significant drop in temperature, you're going to have people migrate from north to south looking for more food and warmer weather. Thus, the sea peoples being pushed down south. Um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, a volcanic eruption occurred in the 530s AD and in Iceland. And we think that's what caused like an 18 month period of almost darkness and kind of like extreme chilling that occurred um, in the 530s AD. As a matter of fact, there's records in China that there was snow in the summertime in China. So that in China is a, a pretty warm area, but they were having that's snowfall. Yeah, snowfall in the summer. And so that's just to show how, and it was from, they think, obviously we think where there's a lot of evidence to point to it, but the volcano erupted, it caused such a layer of smoke and debris mm, in the, in the atmosphere yeah. that it kind of cool, it caused a cooling effect in the Northern hemisphere. Wow. And because it was in Iceland, it moved like the wind shifted it basically over Europe and Asia. Wow. This is honestly like, I am so glad this is part of the connecting, uh, history to current events and correcting political and historical literacy. But like, I'm so glad you brought up the topic of climate change. Cause that's not something that we, we hit very often. And for our history nerds out there, bear with me because I, as something that I've mentioned before, I think this is an area where like history can speak into these more political type of conversations and actually like it should like the political conversations could be better, more educated, like more established on facts instead of just passions and emotions. Uh, if we understood our history and climate change is absolutely one of those areas that I think, you know, we have a tendency here in the United States on both the left and the right to, uh, kind of forget some things. So the first thing is like, you know, as you're, as you're talking, Colin, like first climate change is a thing and it can have catastrophic effects on civilizations, like literally so civilization so, ending, like can completely end civilizations. And so those of us on the right would be like, do well to remember. It's like, please don't completely dismiss climate change because it is a thing whether we like it or not. Secondly, and kind of orienting myself towards my friends on the left, and that is like climate change did not begin during the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> this is like pre a lot of things <laughs> uh, here in the Bronze Age. And there's just a lot of times like things happen and it's not directly a result of, you know, automobiles and industry and uh, fracking and, and things of that nature. So what what my position on climate change and what I think the history does a really good job of kind of balancing a lot of our views, and that is like, we need to be good stewards of the environment. Yes, there are things that we do that can affect our climate around us. You know, talk about a volcano. Like if a volcano can shoot particulates up in the sky that makes it snow in China, right? Like we do need to be cognizant of emissions, the effect that those emissions can have because it is a thing, right? Uh, anyone who's been in any kind of urban area, um, Several years ago, I went to South Korea. Uh, I've actually spent a lot of time in South Korea. And like the air quality is terrible 
because of the Chinese industry and just the way the air currents flow. Uh, India's kind of similar, but for different reasons. Anyway, point being is that like, as we're talking about here in the Bronze Age, not to get too terribly off track here, like it can, like if the climate changes, it can have a significant impact on your society, on your civilization. And it is something that we need to be mindful of. But the last thing I'll say is it needs to be rooted in the facts and not in hysteria, which oftentimes it's, it's unfortunate that it gets tied to that. Yeah. You know, that's a great point. I mean, you can argue, there's really no argument on whether or not it exists. It's really more of an argument on why it's occurring and how severe it is and what to do about it. Um, yeah, there's not much you can do about a volcano erupting that you thought was dormant. But, you know, another, um, speaking of tectonics, and there was actually, so Robert Drews, who I'll probably draw from a lot of his works, is he's has some some writings and some studies on the collapse. Um, you know, when he he's the one that put forth like, hey, there's been a ton of these cities that just basically got wiped out right in this very short period of time they actually have done some additional geological studies. And they think that there's one theory that's been put forth called an uh, earthquake storm. Basically for like a 50 year period, they think there was just a constant string of earthquakes that occurred. And an earthquake storm from what I gathered in the reading was basically saying like an earthquake will occur. It's really severe and it weakens a fault line. So then days we, you know, you have that, the aftershocks instead of it just being an aftershock, it's like another earthquake, like a full on earthquake that occurs because the fault line has been weakened and it's shifted around. So it can, it can occur days, weeks, months, years even. And so we think that a ton of earthquakes occurred in this 50 year period that actually destroyed cities. Um, so several cities per Robert Drews were actually destroyed by these, um, earthquakes. And I'll go through some specific examples, but there's one I kind of want to highlight, and this is sort of a theory, um, that I think is really interesting. Um, part of the reason we use this 1200 BC date is um, that's kind of when we think Troy fell, uh, like 1190, 1200 BC. That's kind of the like the target. And if anyone's familiar with the fall of Troy, the Odyssey um, is when they highlighted this. There's the Trojan horse. Um, the Trojan horse was a gift from Poseidon for the Greeks to 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 get inside the walls of Troy, which were basically for 10 years um, impenetrable. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that Poseidon is the god of the sea and earthquakes. So he is also the god of earthquakes. As I mentioned, there's about a 400-year period between Homer and the fall of Troy. Um, There's a theory that actually an earthquake, and there's archaeological evidence as well as geological evidence to support this, that an earthquake occurred and actually tore down the walls of the city of Troy and the Greeks were able to storm the city. And so the Trojan horse kind of became a euphemism for an earthquake sent by Poseidon. So kind of a theory, but I think it actually kind of marries up like Greek mythology with historical events. That so we are know you saying that the Trojan horse is probably like a... I think it was an earthquake. Mm, and Homer was just using kind of almost metaphorically, but, you know, kind of. Not necessarily Homer. Homer at this point, I mean, it's 400 years later. Homer at this point might have actually been told that it was a Trojan horse. Like they got inside the horse, not, hey, Poseidon, you know, they were praying to Poseidon or whatever, and he sent a gift and it was an earthquake. And it just turned into a Trojan horse over 400 years, something like that. I just think it kind of marries up the two very well. And it kind of fits into this earthquake storm theory of like, hey, we have all these earthquakes and all these environmental events occurring that are taking cities down or, you know, and not just like swallowing them up, but just bringing down their gates. So all of these invaders can just come in and storm them and kill a bunch of people, which is exactly what happened uh, in the fall of Troy. Mm. I think it was, in fact, a real Trojan horse. <laughs> That's okay. You're welcome to. You're welcome to think to have that theory. It's a great story, and I love. You know, everybody knows about the Trojan horse now. Isn't there like this part where, like, and I forget. It's been so long since I read the, or studied the Iliad, but like, there's this part where these like two sea snakes, like, 
so what happens in that yes like kill some guy that's like completely so what happens they're debating uh, so it was actually in the odyssey so the iliad ends uh before the fall of troy and the odyssey is what picks it up and odysseus is like regaling the story of you know the fall of troy um so what happens is they the Greeks are inside the Trojan horse. They're hiding all their ships. Uh, the you know the other army is hiding, um, but the the Trojans see the horse and they're trying. They're debating like what to do with it. They're like we need to bring it in. And this one I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but him and his son were like, we need to burn this. It's a trap. It's a trick. We need to burn it to the ground right now, and. Um, I think it was Poseidon um, who basically was like, nope, that's not going to happen. Um, I'm, And so he sent snakes from the ocean and in front of all of the Trojans, like these two people were just like swallowed up by sea snakes. Yeah, it was, um, what was his name? Lau, I think it was like Laocoon. I, and I'm pronouncing, I'm probably pronouncing, it was like Laocoon and his sons. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, Poseidon just sent, snakes from like the Mediterranean and they just came up and ate them in front of everybody. And what's funny is like the Trojans was like, Oh, well, I guess that means we got to bring the Trojan horse inside the city. So they did. I think like, that's a good example because there's so much within this time period that's like tied with, you know, embellishment of some facts and, you know, some mythological additions and interpretations of things. But kind of talking to your point about the collapse, like it's it's difficult it's it's difficult to determine what's real and what's not. But when multiple different civilizations all have like similar things occurring at the same time, it's kind of like, hmm, even though they might have their own like little spin on what's going on, like you can kind of parse out oh, there's actually something to the fact that all of these different civilizations kind of collapsed around the same time, if that exactly. makes sense. No, it does. Well, and, and like I mentioned, we still, the Hittites and the Egyptians, it, we have some written record, like um, with, and I'll get into the external conflicts in just a second, but like the Egyptians documented the Sea Peoples and their invasions pretty well. Like Mycenae, Greece, talked about the Dorians and the, the, which is a group that we think was from like Thrace and kind of Northern Greece coming down. So like we have documents of like foreign invaders and these earth and some like tectonic events like the volcano. There's also evidence, but yeah, to your point, if they're all kind of corroborating the same thing, it's like, yeah, that probably happened for sure. And that was kind of the thing about Troy. Like for a long time, they didn't think Troy actually existed. Um, They found a city that they, because cities would just be built on top of each other, right? So they actually found a city that matched the general location. And then they started doing some digging and they went down a few levels and they're like, hey, this level got burned really bad and looked like there's a ton of rubble. Like we actually think that this might have been a city and they started dating. It, and that's when they're like, yeah, this is Troy. But a lot of other civilizations in that area were talking about Troy and the city. So, um, you know, they kind of corroborated the whole thing. Anyway. Uh, just in the interest of time, like there was a lot of internal strife also at this time. So like if you start combining um, volcanoes, earthquakes, and famines, um, people start to get really worried, especially if they're very religious people. They're going to start thinking like we've talked about the mandate of heaven in China, kind of something similar, like, holy cow, something is going on that's not good. Um so it causes kind of a mass panic on top of the fact that they're now hungry and tired and scared and the walls are suddenly not there anymore. Um, that puts a lot of pressure internally on these different civilizations. So like the Hittites, the Egyptians, um, everyone in Mesopotamia started having like internal rebellions and conflicts. So um, as power began to centralize within the city, it became difficult to maintain kind of the hinterlands. And then you also had internal politics of um rising what we call like aristocrats trying to to um assume power in the throne so probably one of the more minor uh factors but then the external conflict so this is the famed sea peoples um the sea peoples are a group 
that we don't know a ton about. We know that they suddenly showed up in the Mediterranean and just started wrecking the Egyptian Navy. They started burning cities all across the Mediterranean. They uh, destroyed trade routes. They very nearly um, conquered the Egyptians. And uh, there was a period where they did occupy parts of Egypt. Um, eventually, Ramses II um, was able to fight them off. But we think, based on some of the writings, that they're like an amalgamation of different groups of people um, from uh, what is modern Thrace, the Etruscans in Italy, Sicily, uh, North Africa, and maybe even Southern France and Spain. We don't know for sure. Uh, next week, I'm going to get into the actual sea people and some of the conflicts that they had within Egypt. But long story short, they came out of nowhere um, amongst all of these different disasters and showed up kind of in a, when all of these civilizations were in a weakened state and destroyed what was left for the most part. Once that destruction of these civilizations, so Mycenae, Greece, the Minoans were finished off, the Hittites, the Hittite capital of Hattusa was captured. Egypt was, was put into a very uh, weakened state. The rest of the Bronze Age civilizations entered into their Dark Age. Lots of different reasons for that. They no longer had the interconnected trade. They couldn't support the populations that they had. There were different uh, barbarian groups kind of taking and assuming control outside of, of what would have been considered these civilizations' territories. So advancement, other than um, using iron, really came to a stop. And it's kind of interesting that we look back at the Bronze Age. And I was thinking about this while researching the episode. It really is kind of mythological. And it's almost kind of like we put – we kind of look at it through like rose-colored glasses of like – there was such significant, you know, advancement and it was glorious. And, you know, the Minoans were just hanging out on Crete, making frescoes and, you know, life was good. And the Egyptians were building all these great, you know, these great um, pyramids and temples and, you know, Mycenae, Greece, it was the time of Achilles and Agamemnon. And, you know, I think it's still important to note, like life wasn't all that good. Like, Unless you were an upper in the upper echelon of society, which would have been small, like life could have been really tough. Like slavery was absolutely still like ubiquitous with all these civilizations. You had high infant mortality rates. More than likely, you were going to work a field from the time that you could carry a carry a shovel or carry your tools till the time you died, or you were going to fight in a very bloody conflict to defend your, your city from, from invaders. So like life wasn't always perfect. It was a better time than it was before. And definitely after the collapse, life got very difficult during that kind of dark age, but life wasn't always perfect in the bronze age. I just want to put that disclaimer out there. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, we, we kind of assume like, of course, life wasn't that great. Like, it's the Bronze Age. Like, we're post-Industrial Revolution. Uh, like, quality of life so much better. But the reality is, is, like, there were actually, you know, high points of civilization where, relatively speaking, after that, things got a lot worse. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that's your point, if I'm understanding you correctly, is, like, you know, relatively speaking, like, life could actually, like, was good. And then, um, you know, things happen, it goes downhill from there. Yeah. I think I was just trying to, to, to say that it was, a, it was a high point in human development. Um, they probably had, you know, there were probably some things that they, we would be envious of. I, looking back on it now, I just generally speaking, like imagine living on Manoa, a, you know, on Crete. That's a bold and, claim. I mean, think about it, like for your average office drone that goes to work, like, hey, I'm going to go sit in a chair for eight hours a day, getting up three times a day to go to the bathroom, sitting in traffic to go home in my dark, damp, cramped apartment. Or I could live on Crete and, you know, paint frescoes and sip wine. Okay. You know, that, with, okay. You sold me. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there's probably some some aspects of society that we would look back on and we're like, yeah, that'd be kind of sweet. 
I was just trying to say like, hey, it wasn't all that great. There were time there were there were still things that we would be like, oh, I don't I wouldn't want to trade that. I'll take I'll take Netflix in a cramped apartment over working the fields in Mesopotamia from sun up to sundown for 50 years. So there there's parts that we would look at and say, that's great. I think I would, I'm just trying to say it's like a humanizing it. It's not all like Atlantean type civilization where it's just super advanced and we've made a mistake. We got to go back. Nor am I saying like modern society has everything correct and humans are better now than we were then. You know, there's, you could debate that. There's a lot of debate there. I'm simply saying like the human condition hasn't changed. No, that's a good point. I also want to say this, that a lot of these things, it was not though like time progresses linear. The progression of time is linear. A lot of these things were kind of happening all at the same time and then re-perpetuating them. So like you have an earthquake, uh, a city is destroyed. Well, uh, so suddenly like a trade network is interrupted. Suddenly another city doesn't have as much food. The famine occurs, you know, so like a lot of these things were just happening constantly in like a cycle. So it wasn't like all these earthquakes happened. Then it was a bad famine. Then the sea people showed up. It kind of all happened around the same time and was making things worse. So like every time an earthquake happened or a bad famine, it was like things just got even worse. And then it happened again and it got even worse. And then it happened. So it, and I'm thinking, I'm talking at a, a 50,000 foot high level, like things were getting worse and it was going to be harder for them to come back. And then the sea people showed up and we're still having famines and earthquakes and whatnot. Mm. That was yeah, it. It was, it was a culminating, um, uh, type stuff where it just kept getting worse and worse. Yeah. So I, Jay, I think that's, that's a good stopping point. Just giving a, an overview. So the purpose of the episode, just to give you an overview of what the bronze age was, what happened during the bronze age, why it was an important epic in human history and civilization. And next week, what we're going to get into, we've, we've alluded to the fall. We've talked about some of the reasons, but we're really going to go through in depth um, from some of Robert Drews and his contemporaries on the cities, the individual cities and events that occurred during this and the sea peoples and some of the theories on who the sea peoples were, where they came from, and then the immediate after effects of um, the fall of, or the, excuse me, the collapse of the Bronze Age. Awesome. Thanks, Colin. That was that was fascinating because that's definitely not a time period that I spent a lot of time uh, studying nor thinking about. So, uh, and, it's, and it's kind of foundational, you know, the everything post Bronze Age was a continuation of the Bronze Age. Uh, so, no, thanks for that. And I hope you our listeners uh enjoyed that episode as well uh we really appreciate hearing your feedback we want to make these episodes better the best way we can do that is by hearing from y'all you can leave us a comment shoot us an email we're on social media um we're on twitter instagram facebook uh all variations of loins of history. So give us a give us a follow on there, and give us your feedback. We uh, we want to make these episodes more interesting and, and more helpful uh, for y'all. Um, again, just another plug to like and subscribe and, and give us that five star review. Uh, that that is the best thing you can do if you want to support this podcast. Um, And with that, we look forward to having y'all join us next week on the Loins of History.